September had been a lovely time to get married in Flintshire. The last of the summer heat had sent a soft breeze dancing around the trees of Flint Castle, and the rustling leaves chimed with the hum of their family and friends, meeting, laughing, all together. Such a happy day. You could almost forget the war. But as Gladys held the photograph in her hand, slowly scanning all of those familiar faces, she noticed the paper begin to tremble. How many of them weren't here anymore? How quickly had they gone once the flu had arrived? How soon had she been separated from her precious Fred? Just two months. Two months of married life, and then it was gone. It was all so quick. It was all so cruel. Welcome to the 20th century, towards the end of the Great War, and to the eighth episode of our History of Pandemics season. You'll have heard a lot about the disease outbreak we're about to discuss, especially in the early coverage of our current COVID outbreak. After the Black Death, the so-called Spanish flu has one of the most famous monikers of any pandemic. But does it deserve such notoriety? Let's find out. Our guide for today is Professor John Oxford, a world expert on influenza from Queen Mary University of London. I began by asking John to tell us more about the strain of flu in question and whom it affected. As far as we could see, a single virus was moving around the world. I've done, also done genetic work along with Jeffrey Tobenberger in the States, who's the lead person in the world, I suppose, on genetics of the 1918 flu. He was the first one to get a sample, an actual clinical sample, from a, a frozen Eskimos Inuit lung and take the sample and do a sequence of the hemagglutinin and the HA, the little Toblerone spike that sticks out, sticks out from the virus, one of the most important determinants of virulence and everything else in that virus. Not so long after that, we were all also able to get samples, my own group, from the Royal London Hospital Archives, from the pathology department. So we had two samples, one from a, from a, a policeman and one from a housewife. And when we did the sequencing, and he did the sequencing, we found they're almost identical. So a virus, moving around the world, 3,000 miles apart, what, you know, a couple here in London, compared to Jeffrey Taubenberger's samples from New York, for example, or from the Inuit group in the northern parts of the United States. They're almost identical. Jeffrey's were from soldiers, and mine were from civilians, yet the virus was the same. And the clinical picture in, in, in those groups was the same as well. The clinical picture was that it's not so different from COVID now, in, in general, most people survived. Most people survived. Otherwise, you know, as it were, we got 100 million deaths on our hands from 1918. And almost, but of course, the population of the world was probably about 2 billion at that time. So when you work out the statistics, most people, and they all got in the end, everyone got it, but most people survived. But the mortality struck in the 21, 22, 23, 24 year olds, young people. That's a rather unique and awesome thing about the Spanish flu compared to any other flu. It didn't go for elderly people. In fact, I've seen the figures in the United Kingdom, and I've looked at them recently. Hardly anyone over the age of 65 was dying in 1918 of flu or in 1919 of flu. They just weren't. But the mortality was in the 21, 22, the younger age group. Now, why is that? 
that's another reason why we wanted these clinical samples, not only to do the genetic sequence of the virus, that's very important, but to look at kind of what was going on in the lung. You know, how did they die? Why did this virus attack young people, not the elderly group? And we're still not absolutely sure of answers to those questions, I must say that. A hundred million deaths was an astounding number to comprehend. And I asked John to put that in the context of the history of disease outbreaks that humanity has faced. Well, I think it was a pretty unique situation. You know, when you look at the history of the world, that 1918 outbreak is the biggest outbreak the world had ever seen up up to now. There's been no bigger outbreak of infectious disease. There's been no bigger calamity in the world than 100 million people. I mean, it's almost inconceivable, the numbers, 100 million, but they are they are accurate as far as we can see. I mean, you can see that with the COVID, how tricky it is to get accurate figures. But um, in, in 1918, it was just the same. It was quite tricky. And it was particularly, there was a big black hole in Africa, the number of people who died there, and a big black hole in China, as it happened. But still, the figures have climbed from 20 million, the earlier estimates, up to 100 million, which are now more or less, more or less accepted. You, you can't grasp that. You can't grasp it, and I can't grasp it. None of us can grasp 100 million. What you have to do is concentrate on one. That's the way to do it. And then from that one, you work out everything about that one person, and then multiply it by the figure that you settle on. And then you can get the impact. And the way I do it, when I started work on this virus, I was sent a, I zoomed quite a lot of television at that stage, and I was sent a, a photograph. It was a wedding photograph. In fact, I've got it here in front of me. And it's of a couple who just who got married on September the 7th in a very small village in Flintshire in Wales, the pair of them. There was a, it's a lovely black and white photograph of the pair. But within a month, certainly within two months, the virus had arrived that little spot and killed the husband. It was a bit like Titanic. And I remember getting it more or less at the same time as Titanic, which is a film, after all, not about a ship, but about love and being separated. This was a piece about separation because Fred Biffle, the, the, the young man who, who was her husband, had married Gladys, but they were torn apart because he had the virus and exited, as it were, leaving her. Now, they had the photograph. They had this black and white photograph. She married another person and had a child. And it was that child who sent me the photograph. And she said it had been by her mother's bedside for her entire life. Not her second husband, but the photograph of her first husband for her entire life. And then her mother had the same photograph beside her bedside. And it was only passed to me when in this generation. Now, you see that single couple, the impact, I know it's been called the forgotten flu and all that sort of stuff. It's not been forgotten. And that's a perfect example of the impact of one person, one family of that outbreak. Now you multiply by 100 million. So then you can see the overall punch of it. And as you say, it's completely special because of the, of the age group. Now, you can say, well, why? And that's the question we've been asking. Why should perfectly healthy 23-year-olds die when their grannies, aged 83, didn't? And the virus is moving around. Well, the answer seems to be in the past. That is, you look back and see what their history has been and what outbreaks of influenza. Now, remember, this is a pretty special way of, of special, special virus, but what outbreaks of influenza have they already experienced? 
Well, of course, the 21-year-old had not experienced probably any influenza, but the 83-year-olds had experienced influenza going back to the 1890s and even possibly back to 1840 where there were previous pandemics. So what we reckon is that, that they had were infe- the old people were infected with previous pandemic viruses, either 1889 or maybe the 1860s. They survived that outbreak. And come 1918, they still had some memory, some immune memory. And when the 1918 virus attacked them, those immune cells came into action and protected them after all that time. And so the older people survived, the younger people did not survive. So we think that that's this immune memory was was very important that's pretty outstanding when you think about it. that's just a long-lived memory but of course it's you can have it for yellow fever and other viruses as well again you can buy i think it shows the value of trying to disentangle a, a huge outbreak like 1918 to help us work on this covid and for the future as john was about to outline it wasn't just the sheer number of deaths that was astonishing here but how rapidly these fatalities occurred compared with other pandemics in our series. And that's 100 million people in 18 months. The bubonic plague, I mean, obviously it's a nasty infection, still is, I mean, in the United States at the moment. But they never, they never had 100 million people dying in a couple of years. You might have had millions dying over a period of 30 years. I can accept that. But I don't think we should get too much dragged into bubonic. It's very picturesque if you like to put it that way. I suppose with flu, there's nothing picturesque about it, apart from, you know, you just look normal, don't you, actually? Except for that, that in the Spanish flu, you didn't quite, some of the young people didn't look quite normal by the time they were getting to the point of your death because they had this heliotrope cyanosis. And I accept that. I mean, there's enough evidence of that. And that more or less is that they telling us that they, their lungs are infected or super infected, and they're gasping for breath, and that's why they're cyanotic. They just can't get enough oxygen into them. So a sister could go in the ward and look down the ward and say, look, there's two young men there, both with cyanotic, both with the blue lips, blue ears, and, and, and this lavender coloration. They will die tonight, so we'll have two more beds available tomorrow. So you could do that sort of thing. But more or less, otherwise, people died quietly. And I think people, a lot of people We'll, we'll sort out the COVID when it all comes. I suspect many people died at home with COVID. And in the Spanish flu, most people did die at home. The hospitals in Britain were chock-a-block with wounded soldiers. I mean, there were so many wounded soldiers that they, were, they, they couldn't, all the hospitals were full. They were commandeering hotels and boarding houses all down the coast where I come from, Dorset and Hampshire, all those Bournemouth, Poole, sandbanks, all those famous things you keep seeing there in the paper. All the hotels were full of wounded soldiers. My mother was young at that stage, and she would go and see them. Those young women would go and visit these wounded soldiers. They never wanted them out, a lot of them, because they were so badly wounded. But women were persuaded to go and look and say hello and, and bring them back to normal. So, you know, it, it was pretty horrendous, this, this Spanish flu and the effects mixing with the war as well, I think. I wanted to check with John that we could set the main timeline of this outbreak as taking place between the spring of 1918 and the winter of 1919. That's in the Northern Hemisphere. Yes, really, really. I suppose if we if we talk on my own work to look at earlier outbreaks, then we might stretch it back a little bit to 1917. 
because I think there's, there's a growing feeling this thing didn't just occur in 1918. There was a kind of a preamble, you know, it's kind of built up a bit before it exploded. So, but mainly, yes, mainly the thr- main thrust of the outbreak where most people died, and in fact, they all died, was, in, in, as you say, in the autumn of 1918 and the winter of 1919. Though it's worth spending a moment on the earlier outbreaks of this disease and what we might be able to learn from those. There were earlier outbreaks that wasn't called flu because flu was not a word that came into big use until 1918, actually. And before then, it was called epidemic Qatar or epidemic this, that and the other. It was not called flu until, until 1918, 1919. So there were things described in the medical literature. Well, we spent a lot of time, all my students have, searching the medical literature of Germany, France, England, America to look for pre-outbreaks, what are called herald outbreaks kind of an outbreak that could have warned us that something bad was coming. And there were some of these outbreaks, but uh, it was very difficult, I think, with, with, again, with the war on, and with some, when some of these outbreaks occurred in the great army camps, then it was, it was even more difficult. I mean, you, you, we have to understand the circumstances here. This is total commitment to winning this war, total. Everything else went by the, by the board. We had to win it, so every, all the effort. I mean, for example, over half, three quarters of the doctors and medical staff of England were, were not England, in England, they were in France, servicing the war. And the same with the hospitals, they had 175,000 beds in France to deal with wounded soldiers. Everything was there in France. And there were three, in the end, three million soldiers there, young people moving around in not very good circumstances. And then on top of that, the Western Front is farmland, Total farmland it was the first war to be fought like that, in, I think, on farmland. And that's why there was so much contamination with clostridium and gas gangrene. was so important infection on the Western Front, just because of the cows and the horses around. But also, it was a migrating area, it was an area of vast, of where the migrating birds coming from Siberia moved across the eastern tip of England, Norfolk, down across France, down towards the southern parts of those countries, across the Mediterranean, into Africa. Huge migration. And we know now that migration of these ducks and geese, water birds, is very important for the spread, initiate a spread of these new pandemic strains. Then you've got the farmlands, the, the, the wars being fought on farmlands. Only 12 miles, only 15 miles from the front, where soldiers were being mangled daily, people were carrying on doing their farms. You know, it's just inconceivable when you kind of think of it now. But they were. And even more so, on the great encampments of the British Army up and down the Western Front, including the great hospital encampments, they, they had ducks and geese in the camp. And these camps are not Boy Scout camps. These are camps with 100,000 young people in them, 100,000 young people in them, 24 hospitals in one camp. There were vast, it's difficult to appreciate, the energy that had gone into fighting this war to end all wars. Everything had been thrown at it. All the circumstances we now realize can lead to the emergence of an influenza virus, that is, migratory birds, domesticated birds, large numbers of young people under stress. There they were on the Western Front. So it was a pretty unique circumstance. And even worse, I suppose, when the whole war ended, you had all those millions of young people going home. And they came from the whole world. They didn't just come from Suffolk and and Norfolk. They came from Australia, South Africa, and they got on those boats and the, and the British Navy helped them to get home. They didn't want to be delayed. 
And when they got to where they were going, like South Africa, for example, they didn't want to be stuck on the boat either. So they got off the boat and went up the railway lines normally. And when they went on the sidelines home to their parents, their little farms, they took, they took the virus with them. And the biggest outbreak in South Africa, for example, was the, was the railway line outbreak where they did just that. And their parents, when their sons arrived home, called in all the neighbours and neighbouring farms, and they came in on their horses and buggies from about 12 miles in a you know, that sort of area. And that was an ex led, led to an explosive outbreak. So that was happening all over the world. So, you know, there were all these circumstances. And in a sense, I think now the war engendered the virus, engendered the circumstances where it could begin to spread and, and spread widely around the world afterwards. We committed to this war. We threw everything at it. I even threw my father at it as it were. Yeah, everything was thrown there. And, and the survivors, they came back to England. My father didn't come back to an England fit for heroes. England was not fit for heroes. Not until 1948, when they introduced the National Health Service and all those modern things. 1918, it was not fit for anyone to come back here. And so they had to come, but they came back and they just had to face out this, this outbreak on, on top of everything else they'd faced out. The war had also impacted on any preparation which might have been prompted by those earlier outbreaks. Well, of course, everything in 1917, whatever topic you talk about, religion or art or whatever, is dominated by the war. This is the first global war, and that consumed everyone's energy, just dominated everything. So people who should have been on the lookout, I suppose, public health, who, whoever, politicians, they were totally preoccupied with the war. In fact, my own personal feeling is that the two, the, the pandemic and the war, are closely intertwined. They're almost inseparable, almost to the extent that perhaps if there had not been a First World War, there may not have been the 1918 Spanish influenza. So that's how closely they were intertwined. That's an opinion endorsed by our medical expert, Professor Brian Angus. But I suspect that the reason that was quite so deadly was, as you say, because of the circumstances. And as I mentioned before, you know, it's interesting that infectious diseases tend to find the weak spot and then, then move in to that weak spot. So, so I think it was probably a combination of quite a, quite a nasty virus that had evolved. No immunity in the population, again, probably because the virus had evolved that most people hadn't seen it and then a very vulnerable population. Although, you know, when we see vulnerability to flu, it tends to be being old and being obese. And those certainly weren't the characteristics of people <laughs> in the First World War. So, uh, so it's like, but malnutrition certainly can, can, can cause problems. And again, a lot of people, well, one of the classic things we talk about infectious diseases is that if you have flu, you then afterwards look for infection with a bug called Staphylococcus aureus which is a thing that causes sort of skin lesions and causes pus and causes infections of the bloodstream. And that is one of the things that tends to happen. That if you get flu, you get damage to the lung, then you get a secondary bacterial infection on top of it. And again, at that time, there were no antibiotics. So you would have quite a high death rate from secondary bacterial infection as well. You had no protection against. If you dissect it open, even more than that, and you mentioned um, nutrition there, Normally, the soldiers were, were, were well-nourished. It was, again, all the effort of France, Germany, and England were to win this war. So they had to nourish up the soldiers. So they were well-nourished. If there was any deprivation, 
from the point of view of food, it was not in the soldiers, it was in the home front, on the home front. And particularly in Germany, for example, because we blockaded Germany. The food that would normally be imported by sea to Germany, we, the Royal Navy totally blockaded it. So they, there was no import. So the starvation started in Germany. There was no starvation in, in England. I don't think people were that well nourished on the home front in England, but the soldiers were okay. The soldiers had other problems to deal with, but there were a, a very unique mixture of circumstances which a virus can, like influenza being spread by aerosol and, and, and droplets, can take advantage of. This would also be a relevant place to discuss the name by which we now know this outbreak, the Spanish flu, and how the war led to the use of such an unfair title. It isn't, it isn't fair, and it's a very topical thing to look at, because after all, look at the, you can look at the COVID-19 if you like. You know, for the first time, some of these politicians have been antagonistic about the origin of a virus. We won't name the politician, but he goes around calling this China flu and all that sort of thing and blaming them. Now, the most famous American textbook about 1918 is, is, the, is the, the America's Forgotten Pandemic. And in that book, they, they extol the whole theory that that virus, the 1918 virus, didn't, have, didn't arise in Spain. It arose in the United States, in Kansas. Well, I mean, I don't believe that. I mean, you believe that. I, I don't believe it, but the, most Americans do. So why aren't they busy around talking about the virus that caused the biggest pandemic in the world, the, 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 the 1918 one? We'll call the American flu instead of be more accurate than calling the Spanish flu anyway. So this is sort of tangle you get into if you're not careful, if you start getting nationalistic and the same with HIV. You know, you're going to start blaming a country or well, what are you going to do? So you have to be very careful with it. On the other hand, I think with flu particularly, I felt that we had to try and sort it out because we're not looking necessarily at where and why's of the 1980, but we could look at the circumstances. So we began to look at it quite carefully. And I feel now we've got a lot of evidence to support that, that this virus certainly didn't arise in Spain. And, and the reason why it was all over the newspapers and everyone swallowed it was that Spain wasn't in the war. Spanish newspapers were being published weekly as, as usual, daily as usual. The king was infected, the Prime Minister was infected in Spain. It was all over the newspapers, of course, and the rest of the world where the news was heavily censored, particularly in the warring nations. They, they, they looked at what's going on in Spain. Then. And of course, it was very difficult to shake that off, the idea of it starting in Spain just because of those, those reports. But none, no one believes that, least of all the Spaniards, all the virologists that from Spain that I know are totally a scan spat on thing. But, but so Spain is out of the question as far as we could, we're concerned. That leaves the, the theory of Kansas and Dorothy and the yellow brick road, which is almost equally preposterous, I think, as the Spanish one, or the China one, the China one, because again, half the population of the world, I think that stage was sitting in, in China as well. So that is a possibility. But there's not any solid evidence, if you look at the literature of what there is, of anything emerging in China, there were the statistics. Everyone's tried to find them, and I don't think they found them. We'd mentioned COVID a couple of times, which brought to mind another topic very relevant to us today, second waves. And I asked John to tell me more about the pattern of waves during this pandemic. So the first wave was from, apart from the preceding herald waves, uh, in, in these camps in, 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 in 1917. But the big wave was in the 
autumn of 1918, and by Christmas and, and, and thing had, had gone through its worst. And I think people began to think, well, thank God for that. It's, always, you know, it's going to get better now. But by February 1919, it had come back again, or more likely, it had never gone away. It had never gone away. And for reasons best known to itself, it had circumstances to spread again, and, 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 the, and the mortality began again. In the same groups, in the younger age groups, not in the older groups, in the, in the younger age groups. So those who've not been mopped up, as it were, three or four months ago, were picked up again in 1919. And when you come to think of it, there was waves to follow. It wasn't just wave one, two waves. It's like when you throw a pebble in, in a pond, you get a, you get a series of waves, don't you? You get a big one, then you get a little one, little one, little one, little one, little one, little one, 10 waves. And that was what happened in 1918. There was a big wave in 1918, a big wave in 1919, there was a wave in 1920, there was another 21, 22, 20, uh, up through the 20s. There were enough problems with this virus up into the 20s. And in a sense, it continued causing problems throughout the world through the 30s and through the 40s. And it was not hit on the head until 1957. And it was only hit on the head by another influenza virus that came and displaced it. That's the Asian flu of 1957 called H2N2, whereas the H1N1 had different hemoglobin and neuromonas. They were not cross-immune at all. So you had a virus displacing the old H1N1 and the new one coming in. So there are plenty of waves. There's no surprise about waves. I was also interested in how far other techniques that we've become so familiar with, such as a nationwide lockdown, were applied at this time. Not really, not, not to my way of thinking, but let's put it another way. The quarantine, when it was properly imposed, which was in the South Seas, if it was properly imposed, and they, the Americans had a new colony there, they, they did everything. It wouldn't allow mail in to that total, into their, into their colony. They wouldn't allow any people in, they wouldn't allow any people out. And they did, they did crack it on the head. The Australians delayed the entry into Australia by a, a pretty strict quarantine. Uh, I've been to the quarantine station myself. They had several star stations around. The biggest one is Sydney, for example. And quite a lot of people died there at, at, at the quarantine unit. But that just delayed it. So I don't think that did much good. But, that, you, know, you know, what young people are like, they didn't want to be held in quarantine. So I think the quarantine was broken again and again. It was extremely difficult to contain with the whole thing. So, you know, it's only, we know the quarantines had been successful in the past in the 16th and 17th century against particular diseases. But it's particularly difficult to use it, I think, with a respiratory infection. We know it could not, could not be, cannot be 100%. So, you know, if you've got nothing else, if you're desperate, if you're not in a scientific society and nothing else to do, then the quarantine is important. And you can see what a, it, has con, it has contributed here to the, the COVID-19. It's contributed. But one wouldn't want to be putting one's bets on, on, on the use of quarantine in the future. You, this is a more scientific situation, surely, when we're looking for new specific antiviral drugs and vaccines. Uh, but they were in 1918, I can say that. And I can say what always thrills me is the individual initiatives that were carried out in 1918. They didn't wait in 1918 to say, well, can I get permission from 101 people? <laughs> you've, got, you've got the situation in the camps where I've studied that local doctor makes, that local pathologist makes a vaccine, that they've tried to work out, of course they didn't know that it was a virus causing the disease, they could see that the soldiers were dying of the bacterial infections, they knew those were right, they were good bacteriologists. I mean, Fleming was working there 
in these camps as well. It just shows, you know, Alexander Fleming. It cut his bacteriology there. They knew how these soldiers were dying, and most of them were dying of, of infection with Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, and pneumonia, sort of bugs, you know, bacteria. So it made sense. They didn't know about the virus, which triggered it all off and enabled those bacteria to move deep into the respiratory tree. But they thought, well, that's, they're dying of these bacteria. Let's make a vaccine with them. And so some of the first vaccines made were made with Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, and pneumonia. And they, they were reasonably successful. They made them in doses of 30 and 40,000, and more or less under their own initiative, did the first, some of the first clinical trials. I mean, you know, tried them out in the army, and in, in the New Zealand army and in the British army as well, with some success. But that was individuals. By the time the war ended, all this was disbanded, and the initiative blew out, it just melted away, I think. And England was at a particularly critical time, reorganizing the way that health was handled in England. It was just being reorganized, which is not the best time to do it in the middle of a pandemic, as we've seen with this example. But you know, the, so the initiative flattened, and so they never got round to immunizing any, as far as I know, in England, any local civilian population. Another topic we read about a lot today is the ability of a virus to mutate. So I asked John whether we're aware of any mutation in this particular influenza strain. And I then discussed with Brian how we study this today. No, no, we're not. There's, it's a good question because there's a virus that mutates as soon as you look at it. But you could say, why should it? It was doing very well, thank you. You know, why did it need to mutate? They're not dark, these viruses, if you, if, you, if you look at them that way. It was doing very well. I mean, my, the virus we isolated in London was almost identical to the Inuit that, that, that Jeffrey Tavenberger exhumed and, and, and the samples he got from American soldiers. And all that time apart, all that space apart. I, th I think there were, the ones we picked up in London did have one mutation near the receptor binding site, but we're getting a bit technical there. But overall, overall, the virus started off and it finished. Well, I'm not starting off because we haven't looked at the 1917 samples yet. But by the time we got going in 1918, it didn't seem to change at all as it moved around and caused that devastation. I mean, it does seem to be, because people have reconstructed it, of course, in the lab, which was very controversial. There was a big debate in the scientific community about whether they should reconstruct it in case it escapes. And they had to have a panel to debate it. And the argument is that you should, you should push these flu strains to see how pathogenic they can become so that you can prepare for them in the future. So the avian flus, for example, are very good. The receptors that avian flus use in humans tend to be in the nose and in chickens tend to be in the lungs and nose. So we tend to have less of these receptors in our lungs, which means that we get much less severe disease than, than the chickens. But it is possible that there will be a mutation that allows those things to be much more infectious to humans and to cause severe disease. And so in the lab, people are looking at how you make flu more deadly, which seems, a, seems an odd thing to do. But of course, you want, you want to be ready for it if, it if it comes. And so by changing the way that some of these flu viruses use human receptors or poultry receptors, or ferret receptors, when <laughs> ferrets are used quite a lot, is, is quite important. And it does look when they reproduced the Spanish flu sequences that it was quite a pathogenic flu. 
Given the huge volume of conversation in the media about the so-called Spanish flu pandemic, particularly at the start of the COVID pandemic, I wanted to devote some time to discussing what humanity did and didn't learn from that experience. John started by outlining why the political and social environment at the time wasn't conducive to such learning. I think we could have learned a lot, but there was too much, there was a delay. I think it was too much delay. I think people were so much recovering from the World War and then the Spanish threw on top of it that everyone, everyone was pretty exhausted. And then the, the health system wasn't able to cope with it at that stage. And then, I mean, for example, in Britain, it wasn't so long before the general strike happened. So huge political events arrived on the scene. And, and I think that delayed our response, really. It, delayed, it certainly delayed anyone saying, well, let's, let's make some preparations. Those responses, like should we make some preparations for another pandemic, didn't really begin to happen until the 1970s. And I remember being with uh, Sir Joe Smith, who was director of the Collendale Laboratories, began to produce a pandemic report about what the government perhaps should do. And I remember about six of us helped along with that. But that was not until the 1970s, I think. So not enough, I think, was learned. Uh, there were a lot of things were learned, but they weren't applied in, in, a, in our society or indeed in any other society quickly enough. And indeed, strangely, I remember talking to a very famous neurologist at the London Hospital, you know, way past his retirement. And I said, well, what was it like then? You, were you, 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 you experienced the pandemic? Oh, yes, he said, yes, I was a student at the London uh, Hospital in Barnes. And I said, well, what, what, did you, what, did you, what, what was your experience? He said, I didn't even notice it. I didn't even notice it. I was so busy being a medical student, I didn't even notice the pandemic. So, you see, again, you, you had to try and get it in context particularly with death, you know, you might have 100 million people, but they're dying over, over a period and, and there's plenty of other people left. So an average GP might not have had more than a couple of people die in the practice or three or four. So as long as people are dying like flies, they were not. Most people are carrying on their lives and struggling along. So you have to get the thing in perspective. 99% of people survived that pandemic. They, they did. So, you know, a lot of survivors were around. However, John wanted to point out a couple of additional lessons to learn and parallels with today's COVID experience, starting with the slow reaction of some cities, states and countries. Well, this is pretty amazing. First of all, in the 21st century, we're, we're trying to do, we're not doing much better than they did 100 years ago. And that rather depresses me sometimes. But what the biggest lesson from the great Spanish flu, so-called outbreak, was that if you wanted to prevent it with all these measures, social measures, you know, the masks and all that, you had to react quickly, social distancing. The great cities of America, eight of them, I think, they varied, some of them dilly-dallied. The mayor said, I don't like the idea of masks. The, uh, the, the, the president said, I don't like the idea of social distancing and all this and that. But those that said, right, these are the things that we can do, and we are going to do them in this city of ours, and we're going to throw them at this virus all at the same time. Some of them say, we'll do one, and that doesn't work, we'll do another one, that doesn't work, we'll do it. No, those who threw the, these, these methods at the virus, they had some success. That's the biggest single piece of positive information, I think, that came from that outbreak that would have helped us today if we take any notice of it, whereas most of us here have dilly-dallied around. John also had a warning about longer-term neurological effects, which has echoes in the conversations about long COVID today. 
the virus, of course, was respiratory. We knew that people died of super infection with bacteria, which is not seems to be happening now with the COVID. There seems to be a immune, bigger immune reaction. But there was something something starting that we ne- we didn't know about in 1918. And that is, I think, that the virus was moving into the brain in some people. It was causing neurological effects in a few. And of course, when you get a big outbreak, you begin to pick up rare complications. So neurological complications had been described not very often with flu before, but they were being picked up more often in 1918. And then things quietened down for a, a year, but a neurologist working in in Austria, in Vienna, he began to notice people with Parkinson's, young people with Parkinson's disease. That is the shaky palsy of Parkinson's. But not in a young person, but yes, he was picking up a young person. And and more and more. And so he, it's been described, and his name was von Economo, and it's been described as von Economo's disease. And later on, those people who began to show symptoms of it, and none of them didn't recover, and were kept in hospitals. And in the end, about five million people suffered von economos and they were still being kept in hospital until the 1960s so it's a warning i think that you know, things are not over sometimes with these infections that you think it's all all right you've got you've had your covid you've had your spanish flu you've had this and the other everything's fine you've survived but sometimes it can come back and kick you nastily so that's the thing to be aware of and i think we're beginning to see it with the covid you know it's, you, you, it's not over if you've just recovered from it in fact, it's going to take a long time to recover from it. And, and there might be then long, very long term. I mean, the, the big outbreak with the uh, von Economo disease, the, the peak of it was 1925. And by that time, of five million people who died of it. So it was not small. And that's what I worry about, I think, with the COVID-19, that something else is going to happen from people. They think they've recovered, but even a respiratory virus can penetrate. And we know this virus to COVID-19 can penetrate quite widely in the body. Well, it needs to penetrate, like the, we think the Spanish flu did, in the midbrain area, and it can be there for some years before some problem, clinical problems begin to appear. To conclude today's discussion, I wanted to end on a question that had been bothering me since the beginning. That is, despite recent attention, why this devastating disease has been relatively forgotten compared to the war which ran concurrently to it, especially given their respective death counts. John had a very interesting story to tell in response about a nurse called Phyllis and the central, but now largely overlooked role that women played in tackling the outbreak. But first, Dr. Klaas Kershell, whom we met in our cholera episode, wanted to challenge the premise of my question. So the Spanish flu was never forgotten by the public health establishment. The Spanish flu is a key driver of the public health figures shaping post-World War I international disease control. That experience, the failure of classic bacteriology to contain it, leads to a fundamental reordering on how we think about microbiological disease, the status of epidemiology, etc., in the interwar period. And that then informs the design of the international health institutions like the WHO we still rely on. So I think in terms of the history of science and the history of the public health establishment, it was never forgotten. The people with the generational memory of the Spanish flu end up designing the post-war, post-Second World War, post-World War I international health order. 
and that disease is in their mind. That that kind of phenomenon of rapidly spreading pandemics. And it leads to the fact that the WHO, even one year before it's even formally founded, starts developing an international influenza surveillance system starts debating doing that. So it, it is there. I think we, we too easily, and I come back to an earlier point, tell ourselves moralizing stories about great heroes or lessons not learned from history. I think we should rather ask ourselves why the collective shouting about the Spanish flu wasn't given the same attention as collective shouting about other health threats. And I think that is then a very interesting question because after 1945, the world is a very different place with the advent of antibiotics for bacterial pathogens, widespread decline of infectious diseases, new viral vaccines that are developed. That is, I think, a much more powerful way of explaining why the Spanish flu is perhaps not as deeply lodged in the public memory as it may well have been in the immediate years afterwards. Uh, I mean, additional factors, obviously, the end of World War One, which is obviously a huge event. The fact that large initial first reports about the influenza spreading were censored in many countries leading to the famous description of it as the Spanish flu. And I think perhaps most importantly, the fact that the Spanish flu could not be explained with contemporary bacteriological knowledge of how pandemics should look like. Remember, bacteriology in a way is, springs up in relation to these massive bacteriological pandemics of the 19th century, cholera and the third plague pandemic. And the repertoire of these micropunters, self-styled micropunters is useless in this in this in this context so you know the the learning effect etc it's it, this disease is experienced as a crisis as something that unfolds yes you can use classic hygiene methods but there was no viral theory to explain it or anything after 1945 these things are put into place but there is a declining awareness in the west and i talked about this in the context of laboratory systems too of the need to protect at the local level against infectious disease and the threat infectious diseases pose. Uh, remember, in the 20th century, we see the transition from infectious diseases as a major cause of death to lifestyle-associated diseases, cancer, etc., heart disease, are becoming the major cause of death in high-income country contexts. And so I think that is probably more of an explanation of why these things are forgotten. Um, I, you know, We could also ask, why are the cholera pandemics forgotten? Even though cholera is still, you know, in contrast to the Spanish flu, cholera was a very visible phenomenon of 1960s, 1950s health reporting, and then from the 1980s, 1990s onwards, right? Again, so, again, I think, I think it's much better to, rather than ask lessons learned or lessons forgotten, because they rarely are simple lessons, it's to ask why political marketplaces didn't allocate more resources to these warnings because the warnings were being made continuously. You can read public health reports going back to the 50s and you will read references to the Spanish flu as an event. You know, you've got the whole, the whole weight of society with these wars. They're always remembered, aren't they? We're still, they still talk about Waterloo as it happened yesterday. <laughs> you know, whereas people talk about polio, they say, what's polio? Uh, it's just these societies, the way they're orientated and warmongering has always been a part of them. Walk down Downing Street area, every statue is a bloke standing with his legs apart. He's some famous general or some famous admiral, you know. He's a, rather than saying he's a survivor, you know, he, he's very famous and he kind of was around during the Battle of Arras or something. So the whole it tells you all the time how important men are and it tells you how important soldiers are, really. You don't see many scientists stuck up on a pedestal in Whitehall. I've not seen one, actually. You don't see many women who saved lives coming back from the First World War and risked their own lives 
You don't see many statues to that. And Phyllis Burns, the woman we exhumed in one of our first exhumations, because she was buried in a lead coffin, she volunteered for the Western Front against her parents' wishes, and she became a VAD, like, Lord, like Vera Britton, a volunteering nurse. She was middle class, she'd never seen a lad, you know, and she volunteered and she was thrown into that cataclysmic affair of handling soldiers on the Western Front. And then when the war ended, she came back, but on the train coming back, she was not feeling so well. She had aches and pains, she had slight flushing temperature, coughing, and she knew she had the Spanish flu. She got to Charing Cross Station, where they all came in, and rather than go home to her mother, who she felt she could infect, she tried to battle it out in a small flat that she rented near, near where her mother lived, and she did not survive. So her death was witnessed by a stranger, and the doctor came along and gave the certificate, Spanish flu, double pneumonia, exit Phyllis. All those years later, when we identified her grave, and we knew she was in a lead coffin, and we asked permission of the relatives if we could exhume her, they said, well, we know what she was like, you know, volunteering for the Western Front. If she were here now, and we asked her if she would volunteer to have you be a usual land for scientific reasons, she would say yes. That's the sort of woman she was. I always think of her, actually, and I would like to see more commemoration for the role of nurses and, and, and women who, housewives in that pandemic, I think women played a huge contribution in nursing people. They usually do, but with so many people ill, their contributions are almost like unestimable. And I'd like to see more of it acknowledged. And I'm so proud of our window at the hospital in the church, just behind the hospital, which is a Spanish flu commemorative window based on the Gauguin painting. Where have we come from? Who are we and where are we going? Well, we know where we've come from. We've come from a world of infection. The question of who are we, Phyllis can answer that. And these other people can answer that. Sometimes we don't find out who we are until we're faced with a huge issue like the threat of death from a virus. Where are we going? Well, hopefully we're going to a more scientific world than Gauguin's world. And sometimes I wonder whether we are. Next time on Future Makers, we arrive in the 1980s, a decade that really resonates in my own memory with the Falklands War, the Chernobyl disaster and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Not to mention marriage and the birth of our first two children. But before all this, while I was a postgraduate in 1981, I remember friends telling me of a growing panic about the emergence of a never seen before infection, which seemed to be overwhelming previously healthy young men's immune systems. The HIV virus and the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome it causes would go on to create one of the most devastating epidemics that humanity has experienced, and one for which we still have no cure. We'll hear from some of those who worked on it from the very beginning in the next episode of our History of Pandemics season. Until then, I'm Peter Millikan, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers is produced in-house at the University of Oxford. Our voice artist at the beginning of this episode was Anna Wilson. The show is hosted by Peter Millikan from Hartford College. This series' original soundtrack was written and composed by Richard Watts. And the show was produced by Ben Harwood 
and me, Steve Pritchard. We thank you very much for listening and hope you've enjoyed this series on the history of pandemics.